was born in this state. I've lived most of my life here. We're blessed to have beaches on one side and mountains on the other. And in those mountains, you will find America's largest private home. And of course, you know, I'm probably speaking, I assume you know that I'm speaking about the Biltmore Estate. If you've never toured it, I would encourage you to go. It's really a sight to behold, but this is not a tourist presentation trying to sell you a timeshare in Asheville. I only bring up Biltmore because of the story I want to tell you as we get started this morning. You may know that the house was originally owned and it was managed by George and Edith Vanderbilt. Uh, They were an elegant couple, uh, obviously entertained some very uh, rich and wealthy uh, guests in their time. And uh, today, I was reading this, it says, Today when people summarize the Vanderbilt's management of the Biltmore House, They don't just retell stories about how they treated their wealthy guests. They also point to the story of how George Vanderbilt treated a young employee named Bessie Smith. Bessie Smith. A 2011 article about the Vanderbilts described the following scene. I want you to hear this. If you have been there, you might can picture the room. Smith was a teenager when she began working at Biltmore, and she was intimidated by its opulence. On her first day as a server, she walked into the house's grand banquet hall and, startled by the vastness of the room, dropped the tray of monogrammed china she was carrying. George Vanderbilt, a professional figure with dark hair and slightly curved mustache, rose from his chair as his guests looked on, their eyes begging, what on earth are you going to say about this distraction? But he didn't say anything. Instead, he got down on his hands and knees and helped her pick up the shards before saying, Come see me in the morning. Come see me in the morning. Well, like you and I, Bessie Smith assumed that she was going to be fired in the morning. But instead, the very next morning, George Vanderbilt promoted Bessie to chambermaid. And he did so so she would not have to carry such heavy dishes. Talk about kindness and gentleness toward one of his employees. I want to talk to you a little bit today about that whole theme, the whole idea of gentleness. And as we unpack, by the way, if you're just joining us, maybe it's been a while since you've been here or maybe you're here for the first time. We've been doing a study through 1 Thessalonians. I would encourage you, if you would, to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're kind of picking up, we've been studying uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and today we come to the part, and we'll begin there at verses 7 and 8, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8. We find these words there. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you that we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. Now, what we've been doing is we've been gleaning six marks of a godly ministry from these 12 verses. And we've been studying for a little bit now. And we've already covered the first three. I won't rehash them, but I will remind you of them. We said the first three marks of a godly ministry from this passage is it's not in vain. That is, it's, it's not a failure. It's bold and it's pure. 
And now we come to the fourth mark of a godly ministry. And this is applicable to those who are in full-time Christian ministries, those who serve in various capacities. If you're a Christian with a ministry, if you serve in some way, these are the things that should describe your service. And the fourth mark that we find here, we just read about it, is it is gentle and loving. Gentle and loving. Paul compares the work that they did there in Thessalonica to a nursing mother who cherishes her own children. You get the picture. A nursing mother. There's a little baby. And that mother so kindly and tenderly and compassionately, lovingly cares for that child. She's gentle. She doesn't throw the baby around. She doesn't roughly handle the child. No, she's gentle. She's kind. She's loving. And one of the things that should characterize our service for Jesus Christ is this whole idea of gentleness. Gentleness. Now, this sounds maybe a little bit strange to us because of where we live and when we live. This seems so countercultural. We live in a rough world. We live in a world that's filled with loud, boisterous, bullying people. It's get with the program or get run over. I mean, that's a lot of what we face in life and in the culture in which we live. But this is not the way it's supposed to be with us as believers who are serving the Lord Jesus. Now, now this whole theme kind of really piqued my interest. And, and we can't do a, an exhaustive study on the whole idea of gentleness throughout the Scripture and gentleness when it comes to... Uh, Ministry, but it is interesting and enlightening and even convicting at times to see just a little bit about what the Bible says about this whole idea of gentleness. Let me just share a few verses with you this morning. Thinking about the idea of gentleness, you know I hope that gentleness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, then notice the next one, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be what? Gentle to all, able to teach, patient. Uh, James chapter 3, verse 17, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle. Willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Uh, how about Galatians chapter 6, verse 1? Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one how? In a spirit of what? Gentleness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And these are just some of the verses. To be gentle is to be like Jesus. Remember, as Jesus said this in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is something we need to remember and practice in our ministries, in our service to other people. That is, there, need to be, there needs to be a gentleness toward those that we're serving. It's not about getting our own way. It's not about pushing people around. It's not about being as loud as possible, possible and as boisterous as we can. No, it's about loving people and gently leading them along to Jesus. Tim Shenton went so far as to say this, 
the best way to win others to Christ is not to wave the rod of authority over their heads, but to be gentle and kind. Now, this is not natural for a lot of us. In fact, it's supernatural. That's why it's a fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit works this out in our lives. And we don't hear a lot about the gentleness that should characterize our service for Jesus and our ministry to others. But you see it over and over and over and over again. We're to be gentle. To be gentle is to be like Jesus. Well, we've got the fourth mark. We better move on to the fifth mark before time leaves us. We find the fifth mark here as well, and it's this. Service for Jesus. Our ministry is to be sacrificial. Sacrificial. You still there in 1 Thessalonians 2? Look at verse number 9. For you remember, brethren, our labor and our toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. We might say it this way. They paid their own way to preach the gospel to the Thessalonians. The NLT renders that verse 9 this way. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preach God's good news to you. You remember that in this passage we're studying, Paul and Silas and their helpers, Paul, Silas, Timothy, they're really answering the critics. There were those who were criticizing the work that they did in Thessalonica. They were there, we think, for just a short amount of time. They did a tremendous work in sharing the gospel and teaching them. There was great fruit from that work. But then there were those who came along and said, no, their motives were impure. They weren't really ministering with a pure heart. And they're kind of answering those critics in what they're saying here that were attacking their motives. And they're saying, listen, we worked hard. We labored, we, we sweated, we toiled so we wouldn't be a burden to any of you, so you wouldn't have to support us. We supported ourselves in order to be able to preach the gospel to you. And it's a reminder to all of us, beloved, that true ministry always has a cost. True ministry always has a cost. Ministry will cost you time. It will cost you energy. It can cost you money and resources. You may lose sleep. You may get exhausted. You may want to quit. I think about my own life and, and serving the Lord. There have been times I wanted to quit. Ministry is costly. It's to be sacrificial. I can't help but think of David. I know we've been studying Old Testament passages in Sunday school. And you remember back when David, he says that he didn't want to give, but God forbid that I should give God that which cost me nothing. He knew there was a cost involved in serving Jesus. But think of it. Think about it, beloved. What cost is too great to give for Jesus? Jesus paid the ultimate cost. He gave the ultimate sacrifice for us. He shed His precious blood. He gave His body on the cross. He died. He was buried. He, he rose again. He gave all for us. Can we not live our life and give our all to Him? Ministry is costly. It will not always be convenient. It will not always be comfortable. It can be tiring and stressful and frustrating. It can be heartbreaking, emotional, demanding. It can even be downright dangerous when it comes to serving the Lord Jesus from a physical point of view.
it's a reminder that ministry is costly. Paul and Silas and Timothy were all in. I mean, listen to verse 8 in the NLT. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. It's costly to serve Jesus. Now listen, I don't want anybody to misunderstand. We're not laboring to earn our salvation. We're not laboring to earn God's love. We already have that as believers. We already have that. We're sacrificially serving Jesus. Why? Because we love Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done for us. And that love for the Lord Jesus causes us to love Him and serve Him as we serve other people. And we're willing to lay down our lives. We're willing to give and to sacrifice and to go through all these things in a sacrificial way. Why? Because we know that we're doing it, at least I hope we are, for Jesus. And by the way, there is a reward. We are going to be rewarded one day. What a glorious day that will be. But what about your service? When you think about your service for the Lord Jesus, when you think about your ministry, does the word sacrificial ever describe it? Or is your service more of, you know, if it's convenient, if it's comfortable, if nothing else is going on, we might participate. You see, Paul and Silas and Timothy here, they set an example for us, just as the Lord Jesus does, that true ministry, it is costly. Well, some of you think I'm meddling, so I better hasten on to the last mark of a godly ministry. We know that it is not in vain, It's bold, it's pure, it's gentle and loving, it's sacrificial. And then the last one we find here is in verses 11 and 12. Look at verses 11 and 12. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He likened his service, remember, to a nursing mother earlier. It was gentle, it was loving as a a mother nourishes her child. And here he likens the service that they did for the Thessalonians to a father's love, to a father's care. How appropriate for Father's Day. The the sixth mark of a godly ministry compared to a father caring for his children is this. It's encouraging and instructive. It's encouraging and instructive. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, preacher, you're actually cheating a little bit because you said there were six marks, but you've done two double ones today. I mean, you said the mother was gentle and loving. That's two. Then you said, well, the father, he's encouraging and instructive. That's two. Well, I know that, but you don't want to hang around and have me preach eight marks, do you? You'd rather me just kind of condense them and put them together. We have here the father's care for his children. Listen to it again. I want to read it to you in a different translation, NLT. I want you to hear it differently. And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy, for He called you to share in His kingdom and glory. Pleading with you, encouraging you, urging you, encouraging and instructing you as a good father would His children. Chuck Swindoll has some good words. He says parents or coaches will understand the kind of exhorting and encouraging and employing Paul had in mind. Like a dad rooting for his football player son, Paul and his associates cheered on the newest members of the church and did they need it. 
They'd been spiritually beaten black and blue, hassled and jostled by both Jews and Gentiles. How easy it would have been to drag themselves off the field and onto the sidelines. But Paul's loving, fatherly affirmation urged them on. That's effective leadership. Enthusiastically coaching the team toward the goal even when they felt beaten down and defeated. You get the picture. I've seen some of you at the ball games. You know what I'm talking about. You're cheering, you're rooting, you're encouraging, you're instructing, you're encouraging to keep going. That's what he's talking about here. Paul and Silas and Timothy, they were encouraging, they were instructing, they were pleading, keep going, keep going. Remember, because these believers, they were facing opposition. They were new Christians. They were very... You know, young church, a brand new church, opposition had come against them. And it says, listen, keep going, keep going, keep going. Encouragement is so important in our Christian lives. Not only receiving it, but also giving it. God is so gracious. I don't know about your life, but God is so gracious. Sometimes there are times I need encouragement and God sees fit that at that, that moment that God will send along a, a card or a note or a word from someone and just encourage. Just this past week, I received encouragement. I received kind encouragement. We need to cheer each other on in the Christian life. Sadly, I'm afraid that too many believers feel beaten down in the world and then they come to church and they feel beaten down there as well. That's not good. The Bible says we're supposed to build each other up in our most holy faith. We're supposed to encourage one another. We're supposed to build up one another. We're supposed to, if you will, root for one another. Hey, keep going for the Lord Jesus. Keep, keep serving. Keep loving. Keep going. Paul here is not only encouraging like a father, but he's also instructing them and showing them a clear path like a father would. Now, what was it that Paul and his helpers were instructing them in? What direction were they pointing these believers? Well, it's in verse 12. He says that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. What does walking worthy of God look like? Because that, that, that sentence alone is very intimidating when you think about it just by itself. I mean, who could walk worthy of God? Well, only Jesus can make us worthy, Right? But what does that look like in life? What does it look like to walk worthy of God? Well, I think it means several things here. It means obeying His Word. We obey God's Word. It means following His will. It means doing what God has told us to do. It's simply following Him and obeying Him and allowing Him to guide our lives and following His will for our lives. Now listen, don't misunderstand. We're not doing this to gain His love and His acceptance. We have that as believers. The moment we place our faith in Christ at the foot of the cross and we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, we're not, we're not earning our salvation. We're not earning God's acceptance. We're not making ourselves acceptable. No, we're seeking to live in a way that pleases God because we love God and we want to please Him. Just as a child who has a loving father would want to live in a way where the father would be pleased with that child. He is our Heavenly Father. And we love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. We want to please Him by our words and our deeds and our actions. And this also reminds me that there are some things that displease God. And that needs to be said from time to time. I think we're living in a world where if you say anything about, well, this is wrong or this, right, you're a legalist, you're this or that. No, the Bible is very clear. There are some things that Christians should not do because they're sin. 
Furthermore, there are some things that we choose not to do because they're not expedient. They're not helpful. We might have liberty to do certain things, but we don't do them because they don't help us in our Christian life and our ministry. So in our ministry to others, like a good father, we should encourage, we should instruct others, we should live truly Christian lives. Paul and Silas and Timothy, they not only taught this, they modeled it. Look at verse 10. You still there in 1 Thessalonians 2? I'm always pointing you back to the Word. Why? Because it's all about the Word. It's the authority of the Word of God. Look at verse 10. You are witnesses in God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believed. In other words, they did what a good father does. A good father, he's going to not only teach right, he's going to live it out in front of his children. It's not just to you know, do as I say. No, it's follow me as I follow Jesus. They lived it before him. What might this look like in daily life? As I went kind of hunting and looking for a way to maybe show this, I ran across a story. Uh, you won't be surprised by the family I'm going to mention, I don't think. But I, I ran across a story uh, concerning Billy Graham and his family. Anne Grand Lotz, who a lot of you probably know who I'm referring to. You may have read some of her work. She was 17 years old. And she's the daughter, of course, of Billy and Ruth Graham. And she was involved at 17 in a car accident. And the car accident happened because she was speeding carelessly down a winding mountain road. And she smashed her car into their neighbor, uh, a Mrs. Pickering. I'll read you what Anne said. Anne was too afraid to tell her father about the accident, so for the rest of the day she kept avoiding him. Can you imagine a 17-year-old girl doing that? When she finally came home, she tried to tiptoe around her dad, but there he was standing in the kitchen. Anne tells what happened next. I, I paused for what seemed a very long moment frozen in time. Then I ran to him and threw my arms around his neck. I told him about my wreck, how I'd driven too fast and smashed into the neighbor's car. I told him it wasn't her fault, it was all mine. And as I wept on his shoulder, he said four things to me. And I want you to hear what Billy Graham said to his 17-year-old daughter. Four things he said to Anne. First, he said, Anne, I knew all along about your wreck. Mrs. Pickering came straight up the mountain and told me. And I was just waiting for you to come and tell me yourself. By the way, boys and girls and teenagers, we already know most of it. That's free for Father's Day. Already knew, number one. Number two, here's what he said. I love you. I love you. Thirdly, here's what he said. We can fix the car. Fourth, here's what he said. You're going to be a better driver because of this. Hmm. Anne went on to write, sooner or later, all of us are involved in some kind of wreck. It may be your own fault or someone else's. When the damage is your fault, there's a good chance you'll be confronted by the flashing blue lights of the morality police. But my father gave me a deeper understanding of what it means to experience the loving, forgiving, Embrace of my heavenly Father. You see, by his response, and by the way, Billy Graham wasn't perfect. He'd be the first to tell you. 
But by his response in this individual case and the life of his 17-year-old daughter, Billy Graham did not just teach his daughter what God is like. Billy Graham showed and modeled to his daughter what God is like. He was, he really fulfilled what we talked about today, he was gentle in the way he responded. And he was encouraging. And he was instructive. And he honored the Lord in his response. Now what about us? Do these words really describe our service, our ministry, our lives of living out for Jesus? Do these words describe us? Are we gentle and loving with other people? Are we willing to sacrifice in our lives time, energy, money, resources, sleep? Are we sacrificial in our service? Are we encouraging? Are we just always tearing down and finding fault? Or do we come alongside a brother and sister and encourage them and lift them up and give them kind words and give them encouraging words? Are we instructive? Are we rooting for them like a dad would for his son out on the field saying, keep going, keep going, you can do it! Are we walking worthy? Are we living our lives obeying God's Word, following God's will, and doing God's work that is designed for us to do? Paul and Silas and Timothy, these leaders laid a wonderful example for us. They were not perfect. We are not perfect. But we all can grow in these areas as we allow the Lord to work in our hearts and our lives. May it be so, and may it be so here. May this be a place that when people come here, they're not only given the gospel and encouraged to receive Christ, but when they do, and when they begin to live their Christian lives, may they feel that they are built up and loved and encouraged and instructed and helped. And we need to do that for each other because all of us need this in our lives. Let's bow together. Father, I love you today. We love you as a church family. We've talked about some things, Lord, as you know, that may be a bit foreign to us at times. This whole idea of being gentle. Help us to do that, Lord. It doesn't come natural for a lot of us. We need the Holy Spirit to work that out in our lives. All of us do. Help us to be loving, to be ready to sacrifice for You, to be ready to encourage others and instruct others and help others. And Father, we do pray that You would help us to live out this passage of Scripture. That You would help us to walk worthy of the calling that You've placed upon our lives. Thank You for loving us. Thank you, Father, for being what we sang about earlier, such a good, good Father. Thank you that there's nothing we can do that would cause you to stop loving us or to give up on us. We know that as a good Father, you will discipline us, you will correct us, but you always do it in love. And Father, I pray today, if anybody here does not know you as their Heavenly Father, 
May this be the moment where your Holy Spirit touches their heart, shows them their need of Christ, and brings them to faith and repentance. Forgive us, Lord, where we fail you. Forgive us for trying to do, at times, your work in our strength. We acknowledge today, we confess, we agree with your word. When you say, apart from you, we can do nothing. But we also claim today, your word where it says, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So strengthen us and help us and guide us and direct us, I pray. And we give you all the honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning, 516. The altar, as always, is open. If you need to come and pray, if we can help you in some way, we'd love to do that. 516, like a river glorious is God's perfect peace. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding as He promised perfect peace and rest. Let's stand together, 516, and sing out. Like a 